This is the Leadership and Insurance Podcast, brought to you by FinPro Search Partners. Insurance companies are businesses and they need to look for the long term and be sustainable. We went from zero to one and now it's going from one to a hundred. Insurance as, as a concept, as a kind of service, is brilliant. The execution is what we're looking at now. I think the companies that are going to succeed are the ones that are going to understand and master the art of intent. When we talk about innovation, we lean too heavily to think about technology and we don't think about creating a culture of innovation. I think innovation is essentially continuous improvement of existing processes and platforms and product, right? It's got to be easy. It's got to be seamless. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is the Emerging Tech Series and I'm your host, Gavin Savage. Today, I am very lucky to be joined by not one, but two guests. Um, I'm joined by the Chief Architect, Kevin Green, and CTO Vivek from Kin Insurance. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, Gavin. Yeah, thank you. Um, before we begin, it's Probably rather than me make a mess of trying to introduce what your roles are at Kin, um, maybe you want to just quickly um, explain a little bit about, you know, your journey into Kin, and um, explain a little bit about what you both do at the business. Sure. Go first. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I am currently the chief architect at Kin, which on paper generally means that I'm heavily involved in figuring out what technology we're using, figuring out how best uh, teams can work on that technology, sometimes building proof of concepts, sometimes helping teams uh, get over humps. Um, but in terms of how I joined Kin and my journey there, I joined when Kin was much, much smaller, about six years ago at this point. So while on paper, that is what the chief architect does, there's also a lot of uh, historical context that I'm pulled in for, or business context I'm pulled in for, uh, as I've seen the business grow quite a bit over my time there. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I primarily first try to get out of Kevin's way <laughs> to make sure <laughs> he, can do, he can do what he needs to do. Um, I, uh, I, I started my journey in the consulting world. I moved to a large corporate uh for for about six eight years and then i came back to the startup world after that i've been at a couple of startups uh so i was super excited when kim kin came along uh for various reasons you know i for me the uh the big thing the joy of working in a startup is where tech can be a differentiator right if uh, tech cannot be a business differentiator for that business, then it's not particularly interesting for me individually. So, um, you know, when I started chatting with uh, Sean, who's our CEO, and Lucas, who was, uh, you know, the previous CEO and co-founder, it was quite apparent to me how much, you know, uh, even though uh, possibly outwardly a stodgy industry like insurance is pretty... Uh, data-oriented, pretty tech-focused, and where uh, this industry is going is is extremely tech-centric than perhaps what you might uh, imagine from the outside. Mm. Brilliant. 
thank you guys. And I guess maybe this one's for, for Kevin, but um, you know, happy for either of you to tag in. But the evolution, I mean, this podcast, the tech series, brings in a new wave of, of listeners, but by and large it's, you know, insure tech or insurance founders, investors, and, and really just anyone in the space. But we're, we're now bringing, a, a, as I say, a new audience in with this series, but I'm pretty sure most people have heard of who can insurance are, but just in case they've not, um, would one of you mind just describing a little bit about the kin insurance business and I guess the evolution of it since, you know, its inception to, to current scale over the last seven years? Yeah. So when uh, kin started, it really started as uh, an industry choice, not necessarily a specific startup. So the co-founders, Lucas and Sean, they were really oriented at breaking into an industry that had a large market cap. While they had a lot of fintech background, they didn't necessarily have a lot of insurance background. And from there, it was all about figuring out market fit in insurance. So uh, at one point, a very, very early acquisition of Kins was buying an agency that operated in Illinois. We then... Uh, worked with that agency to get the basics of writing policies. This was early days where I think everyone at Kin had to be a licensed insurance agent just to understand the business really well, uh, including everyone working on the tech side. Uh, over time, uh, we eventually started partnering with a company in Florida acting as an agency, uh, but not one that actually managed anything, not an MGA, uh, just a a standard agency in front of them, uh, selling Florida home insurance policies. It was a big market with a lot of players who weren't super comfortable being there, a lot of national brands especially. So it was a good opportunity to sort of get started. From there, we honestly, we really refined our Florida experience a lot uh, and eventually realized that in order to to really have control over everything, uh, especially after a couple of um, business relationships either uh, didn't work out or we had trouble making the partnerships that we wanted or we had trouble getting the terms that made certain things financially make sense with, for us. Uh, we sort of went all in on building our own carrier. And we launched our own carrier in Florida in 2019, I wanna say. Uh, and since then, we've uh, been sort of slowly growing with an eye towards states that are underserved by current markets. So typically, that tends to be catastrophe-prone states. Uh, we have a lot of experience working in hurricane states. And uh, geographically, it has trended to be uh, the southeast portion of America, uh, especially coastal states, um, though that is uh, expanding Every month, it feels like. Mm. A really powerful combination. And in the end, when you look at, well, very recently, that value chain, the highest returns and margins is very much on the on the distribution. So the last three, four years for you guys at Ken must have been supercharged, really, from a technology standpoint and from breaking into more and more, I guess, verticals across the US. Yeah. One of the things that was... Uh, both stressful but also very rewarding is there's a, a very different approach to the technology when you're building 
what amounts to a lead generation engine for an agency. And when you're building technology that needs to deal with statutory reporting requirements on a quarterly basis, um, especially that first year that we're, we were a carrier, there were a lot of uh, hard lessons learned where it was like, oh, we have to actually shift the way we're doing development. We have to really up our orientation around quality um, because if you, you know, if you mess up a, a sale, you're out that sale. But if you mess up reporting to one of these regulatory bodies and they come in and they fine you $5,000 per instance and it affects 40% of your business, you're not a company anymore. Um, and that was uh, that was a really big thing, uh, especially early on, but it's still very much so a part of how we develop technology is how do we make how do we make things right? How do we focus on compliance first while still being able to deliver quickly while still being able to innovate? Um, and that was the big the big shift that came with being a carrier. Mm. And the, the the technology behind the whole machine allows allows you guys to to really understand the you know we had um, Sean on the the original series of the podcast you know and, and it was it was interesting hearing how the tech allows it to really understand those physical properties of not just the the, the buildings that you insure but how each building reacts differently to these you know events that you know, we're seeing more and more, um, unfortunately, of in the US. So technologies play the pivotal role in, in Ken's approach to underwriting, pricing, and, and serving customers better. Like for you, Kevin or Vivek, you know, which technologies have which technologies do you think have been the greatest levers on the business? Because Ken started with a bunch of property data to help price underwrite accurately. Did that actually pan out to be as impactful as originally thought? And if not, you know, akin to hear about, you know, the evolution as it's went on. I'll, I'll say there are two strategies that Kin and other, the, the reason why the tech industry even exists is, uh, you know, one is just speed, right? Like, so we're not getting any data that no one has access to. I mean, it's not like we've got some secret investigators giving us data that no one has access to. We have data that almost everyone has access to. Uh, but what we do really well is stitch them well together and uh, work and, and uh, sort of have a business that can react to that data quickly. And, and you may, you know, uh, I use the example of a gym, you know, everyone has access to the gym but not everyone goes to the gym and not everyone goes to the gym as frequently. Now, given the same resources, the outcome for this group of people will be different because of how they leverage the resources uh, that they have access to. So, so similarly, I think uh, we've um, built a company uh, and I think it's been easier for us to do that as a startup than perhaps you might with a legacy company, which would like you know convince people to behave differently, we've sort of just built a company that acts differently, thinks differently, and the expectation is differently, right? So, you know, if I send a note to Kevin, he is thinking about it and responding to it in minutes. Uh, I have you know worked with larger companies. That's not how it works. It just is not how it works. 
We have a culture that uh, values thoughtfulness. Cannot replace a culture of thoughtfulness with tools and technologies. It is just a culture of thoughtfulness where thoughtfulness is recognized and appreciated and lack of thoughtfulness is immediately you know, exposed, so to speak. I don't, I don't know what's the right word for it. So when you think about you know, applying technology to this, I think our speed at which we can leverage data and technology to get things done, uh, the expectation management on the culture of how we build things is a big part of why our tech teams are phenomenally successful compared to others in the market. The other thing that is interesting uh, is intellectual honesty. Intellectual honesty is um, is a thing where you know you're you're kind of fooling yourself into believing, you know, facts that don't exist. And you've seen insurance companies in the market fare quite terribly because you know you're viewing data that is unfavorable in a favorable light and hoping for the best versus recognizing that data is unfavorable because the actions that you need to take for unfavorable data are not popular. And to take unpopular actions based on you know, not favorable data is hard to do. So intellectual curiosity is a big part, I think, of how we succeed as tech. You may not think of it that way. You're like, wow, you've given me an answer that has nothing to do with tech, making a tech successful. Yeah. But I will say that to me, that is why we are successful. And you know, I've seen a lot of different organizations, and Kevin has seen a lot of organizations as well. So this is mostly a think about how do different tech teams behave and what is their DNA. Yeah, mm. and I think expanding on that, a lot of the things that are built into the culture of a fast and efficient tech company end up also becoming really impactful technology choices that we use. So for example, they talked about the fact that we use a lot of data sources that are readily available. Um, a lot of times you might be uh, signing up for a long contract or you might be entrenched with a particular vendor, but we we don't use any data set that a different insurance company couldn't also contract with. Mm -hmm. However, we have things set up in a way that if we need to suddenly change vendors, um, either because the contract changes or because our data analysis suggests that, hey, while this is great for uh, roof condition in Florida, it's not actually the best thing for roof condition in South Carolina. There's a gap in the company and we need to, to switch things. We've built things in a way that that kind of a change of switching between things we already have can be a very long uh, decision-making process where we're doing our due diligence with the data. But when it comes time to actually implement it, everything is highly configurable. So that change only takes 10 minutes. Uh, or when we need to launch a totally new data source, everything is templatized and productized to a point where rather than thinking about the things that we build as custom proprietary tech, the things that we build are tools for folks really heavily in the insurance world, really heavily in the analytics world to make decisions and then just sort of plug and play what they need. 
That, that's a really good uh, point. And I'll uh, maybe throw another aspect of our organization that allows us to build this stack, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about culture. We put a lot of emphasis in our people and hiring and the expectations for different uh, types of engineers in the organization that lead to the outcomes that Kevin is talking about because, you know, our engineers don't want to create stuff that is uh, essentially not uh, built in a way that is uh, not configurable, expandable. Uh, it's not to say we don't have challenges. Uh, we have lots of tech challenges as well, but I think we have a uh, better chance of unwinding those things because of the motivations of our engineering teams and product teams. Uh, just to be, um, um, we often talk only about engineering standalone. Our product teams are phenomenal partners that are not uh, antagonistic towards solving the systemic issue. And that's a big, uh, big thing. Mm. The kind of, again, to, to mention, I would say love triangle, but we could expand that, you know, between everything that you've mentioned there and, and as your role as a CTO, you know, Kevin's is the, is the architect and you have engineering and product, you know, I often think my experience of, for now, podcasting is not the day-to-day job. It's um, executive search. So the you know speaking to architects and CTOs on the market, it seems like you know when when maybe architects are looking to move on, or if I'm asking them about you know their day-to-day, they're always looking for they're always they're always looking for you know they're they're looking at the technology strategy. They're <clears throat> you know they're solving problems. It's design. It's designed through solving the most complex pieces long term, but and then you, my, I guess my question is based around architecture, non-functional requirements, and then you have product managers that are constantly pushing for new features in a company like Ken, where you guys are constantly, you know, pushing the boundaries, and and that that along comes with new features and new ideas and new product. You know, how do you address the balance? of this with you know non-functional requirements technical debt you know where are the kind of the trade-offs there for for you guys as a cto and architect that are really overseeing all of that yeah i uh i love this question because this is something that's near and dear to my heart um because i'm i'm a big believer that if you cannot convey the reason to product why you should do a thing, you maybe shouldn't do that thing. So what I mean by that is I've heard a lot of technologists over the years describe things with big concerning terms. Uh, Sometimes it is technical debt. Sometimes it is a uh, framework is getting outdated. Uh, Sometimes it is just a desire to use some sort of new data store or new feature. And None of those things is bad necessarily, but none of those things is necessarily good. If you can't convey to someone, hey, we should embrace this technology because while I think it might slow down the next two months of development, we might launch the next state or two slower over the course of the next year, the next two years, the next three years, it'll make us much, much faster. Um, So the 
the answer that I have or the direction that I really heavily try to push any engineers at kin towards is think from their perspective. You, your goal isn't to say, hey, this is a good thing. We need to do it. Your goal should be to explain why this is a good thing, why we need to do it. Um, yeah. And in my experience, especially if you're doing that consistently and honestly, product will respect that. Because if you talk to any person in product or any person on the business side of the house, as long as they're not incredibly uh, short-term focused, like they're trying to hit some goal in the next two weeks or the next month, if you're trying to convey to them how it'll help us meet the year's goals or the three-year plan goals, mm. they'll be receptive and they'll trust you. Mm. Yeah, I, I I ask our teams to think of themselves as the general manager of the business rather than, you know, engineer or, tech, you know, product. Like, you're the general manager of the business. You tell me what's the right thing to do, you know, because uh, auto companies have to deal with this a lot more than us. If you build, you know, crappy engines and the car has a phenomenal paint job, you know, you're not going to succeed as a company. I mean, maybe you'll succeed for the first two years, but as your brand, you know, goes to the mud and your automobiles are then shunned by everyone in the industry and your customers, you will not be successful. So, you know, if you think about the, as a, think about it as a general manager of the business, you're going to, you know, start to make decisions that are good for the short term and the long term health of the business. You cannot, make only short-term decisions and you cannot make only long-term decisions. Any business that does only short, only long is going to not be a long-term business. You have to make trade-offs all the time. And um, I, I will say that um, teams that have psychological safety will do the right thing. The teams that don't have psychological safety will tend to do the wrong thing. Because yeah. if you're under some fear, unsaid, unspoken fear of, you know, doing the right thing because of the wrong reasons, you will say, you know what, it's like what the politicians do, right? It's like, you know what, I'm here for two years, I'm going to just do what makes sense for the two years, who cares about what happens 20 years, and that's, you know, going off track a little bit, what happens in our political system, we just continue to make short-term decisions, but that's not how most good, well-functioning teams work. They will make short-term and long-term decisions. Uh, and advocacy is important. So I think Kevin has a lot more experience uh, and has a lot more perspective on what could go wrong. So you can imagine a boat leaving from New York that is six degrees off. Now, an uninformed you know, captain may say, well, it's only six degrees off, it'll be fine. But you might reach the Horn of Africa instead of the UK if you just continue down that path. An experienced leader will see where those six degrees are going to land you and will either stop you right away and say, no, you, you can't go six degrees off, you got to adjust course now, or they'll let you go six degrees off for some period of time and then adjust course. But you can't be a successful leader if you simply accept that your you know, ship is going to be six degrees off and just continue down that path for the entire you know, Atlantic or Pacific journey, you're not going to land in the right place. So you have to exercise your judgment. 
And I think judgment is worth a lot. I mean, we, we pay people uh, to have good judgment because they will not make the wrong decision for the business. And you can't, you, you, you can't live in this world where, uh, you know, you make poor decisions and just continue going. And we've seen that. I mean, we've seen that in our, our business. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a good example. Uh, we, uh, we, we were trying to do um, something uh, to improve our productivity. And we didn't have data on that productivity. So we started measuring the loss of productivity because the subsystem was failing. And we found that that subsystem was causing a lot of pain, but we didn't have that captured as a metric. As soon as you captured that as a metric, we're like, oh my God, that's how much pain it's causing. And then we introduced other software development metrics. Uh, we bought the system that showed us the impact of that. Uh, it took us three days to solve the actual problem, which was not solved for years. It had gone on for years because we just didn't know how much pain it was causing. It was three days to solve the problem. And then we saw almost a 40% improvement in productivity. I mean, I would say that anyone that can accomplish that would, would do it, but they don't because they don't know. So one big aspect of running good engineering teams is to have data, like just know, because once you know, it becomes so much easier. No one, no one fights you because they're like, oh my God, it's crazy. You know, so we saw our lead times go down uh, Kevin, keep me honest here. I think our lead times went from 22 or 25 days to 12 days, a change lead time. It's like 50% cut in change lead times. I mean, that is, if if I could not have asked for a better outcome if I, you know, uh, ramped it up. It's very good. <laughs> Amazing. And, and you mentioned something. I mean, I'm really passionate about it, particularly within, you know, of course, we're on the tech series, but, you know, within engineering and specifically, you know, you mentioned psychological safety um, throughout that description there. And, you know, that's about how, how big is the engineering team at Ken presently? The product engineering team is about 140. The total 140. product engineering teams. And so, and, and you, you clearly value each and every you know, and, and it's the way it should be, but, you know, each and every engineer and product professional at the business, and you clearly speak about them like they are entrepreneurs and they are partners within the business. It's not just about execution, execution, execution. And and that comes that really comes back to psychological safety because I think in a lot of, particularly in, in companies I've noticed within insurance or financial services that, you know, you have the business, the wider business, different uh, functions and um, and then you have engineering which is over here you know and, and it's they're kind of in this black box to a degree and no one quite knows what they're doing but they know they're doing some pretty cool stuff it's like black magic but that psychological safety I think what I'm getting at one is the kind of culture piece which we can you know unpack later but as you scale from as Kevin's been a founding member, and you and you scale to one forty ish, how how do you maintain that psychological safety? You know, Kevin mentioned about ex explaining to everyone about, you know, we're going to do this, and this is why we're going to do it. But I think a lot of businesses, and and I, certainly from my interactions with other CTOs and founders, that becomes more difficult as you scale. But you guys still seem to have that 
really close knit coordination and and communication between everyone. Like, how do you protect that psychological safety? And I guess what what does that mean to you? That that word or that phrase. So to to me, uh, when I hear psychological safety, the number one thing I want to protect in terms of engineers I work with is I want them to feel comfortable taking a risk on a thing that they think is a good idea, but aren't 100% sure will succeed. There are a lot of ideas that are successful 80% of the time, but are going to have a much, much bigger impact if you do all of those and then unwind the ones that fail than if you only try to do ideas that are successful 100% of the time. So in terms of how we can kind of protect that and how we can kind of help that, um, there are a couple options. A big thing is, uh, while my, my title is architect, I work a little bit differently than other places I've been with people who have that same title. I've seen other places where the architect's job is to design the entirety of the system and then say to a staff engineer, here, build me this place. Uh, and that, when I was in those sorts of staff engineer roles, was a very unsatisfying uh, relationship. So uh, instead, a lot of the architecture at Kin uh, really tries to be driven by employees as much as possible. So that could be through... Uh, weekly office hours that we have. That could be through a, a weekly meeting where we get all of the staff engineers across Kin together to chat about ideas that they might have or opportunities that they might see. Um, it could be through uh, things like uh, subgroups that we've started doing that are uh, a little bit comparable to guilds that we've seen other places. So for example, following like Spotify's guild mentality, uh, but a little bit more restricted to really try and empower those folks to make a change. Hey, we really want to do something different with how we're approaching API developments. We've seen a lot of seen a lot of different practices put into place and we want to have a group that decides on some standards. Let's get a group of six people together and their goal for Q4 is come up with good standards. And those are going to involve talking to a lot of people. Those are going to involve building useful tools for other people to use. Um, so ultimately, all that is to say is when I hear psychological safety, I hear being able to take risks comfortably. And in terms of what's helped me throughout my career, being able to take risks comfortably, it's been knowing that someone has my back if I fail and knowing that the idea does have merit just by bouncing it off of a couple other folks. So building a structure where people feel supported and people feel like they have outlets to express those ideas and gain support for those ideas is what I think we really try to do, uh, at least on my end when I hear psychological safety. Evan, you mentioned something that I think is also uh, a really important uh aspect of why some tech companies succeed and some don't. Uh, you mentioned like having IT over here versus IT embedded in the business. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy called Marty Kagan uh, that wrote this uh, really great blog article, uh, I think uh, a decade or so ago about uh, companies that 
have an IT mindset versus a product mindset. And companies that create an IT mindset, and it's a really fantastic uh, article you should read, are companies that look at technology as a services business and simply look at those tech teams saying, do this, and, and, and that's all they do. They become a ticketing engine. They're like, you know, I'm going to create tickets. You, all those tickets become a ticketing engine. The tech teams uh, in those companies uh, are not vested in the success of their business. They don't quite un- see themselves as being part of the success of the business. They simply see themselves as, you know, ticket machines and, and looking at ticketing. Uh, and once you have that IT mindset and a product mindset, then you start making decisions based and, and and the products of these companies look very different. A product built by product companies, the product companies thinking of users, thinking of success, thinking of KPIs, thinking of, you know, how I'm going to streamline that user experience and make sure that the user is successful, that this business is successful, they're providing the or solving the needs of the user Um and IT mindset company products will look very different because they're simply solving exactly what they're told for. They're not using any creativity. They're not really thinking about the problem. They're simply thinking about efficiency and ticketing. And while efficiency is uh, certainly important to every organization, an organization that doesn't have a product mindset is going to be a very different organization. And when you have you know teams that are out here then you have teams, uh, you know, that have data science models that take years to go to production. They have data, they have data scientists, you know, you have 200 data scientists and they cannot launch a data science model to production. They just cannot. Um, and it it takes a lot of, puts a lot of friction in the process because, you know, combination of not having psychological safety means that I can't experiment easily. I don't, I can't make a mistake. And so I'm going to like make sure everything is, you know, 110% correct before it goes to the next stage. The person on the next stage is making sure that they have CY in place so that, you know, they don't receive something that they're going to put forward. And so this organization is beset by CY mentality and is beset by people making sure that they're doing the minimum to get fired and they are responding to tickets and all of the stuff, you can't just look at it. You look at it and you're like, what is going on? Why can't we produce anything? Because it's un- unsaid expectations. It you, you can't have, the people won't say it. You know, when they don't have this in place, they won't just speak up, they won't say it. And the organization is slow. It creates poor products. It has more losses. It has more, you know, LAE and, you're looking at it from a Six Sigma lens and then you're looking at cycle times and you're looking at all kinds of stuff because people are just not willing to work in that process and it just destroys these companies. Hmm. Do you think, uh, and, and this by no means sounds like it's the it's the case, it can, but you know, insurance is so risk averse and then you couple an insurance business with insurance experts with, technology people and then you're asking you're 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 working with potentially a, a company as an engineer and an industry that thinks in decades um you know in terms of the, the the product that they're offering so do you think it's more difficult if you're say you're an engineer that doesn't come from a previous insure tech or highly regulated industry because you're having to then 
learn insurance, learn why you're building the thing, learn the challenges with it. And the whole business model is about being risk averse, but then you're asking engineers to, to take risks and, and put themselves out there. But do you think that could, the, the insurance industry has a way of maybe stifling or I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not a fair question because it's I, not the case. No, I think it's. I think it is. Uh, I think it goes back to if you have a tech team that doesn't understand the business, then they're going to behave in an uninformed way, right? Because yeah. they just understand the business, or they're not vested in the business itself. They're just kind of, well, you told me to do it. I'm going to do it. So when we talk about taking risks, we're not taking any risk that would you know, create a situation where we're not in compliance or whether, yeah. you know, we have regulatory risk. We don't take risks in that fashion, mm-hmm. uh, but we may uh, take risks in um, perhaps the user experience that we see and we'll say, well, you know, we think this experience versus that experience, well, let's try it out. Let's see, you know, what the customer responds to better. Uh, it's in a lot of different aspects, you know, uh, we may think that our, you know, uh, pricing model is approved and within range, uh, but we we want to understand how the customer uh, reacts to those. So I think we will always work within the regulatory framework because that's in no one's interest, nor not the customers, nor the regulators, nor Keynes' interest to uh, not be uh, within that bound. But there are a lot of things we can do to understand how to make a customer's experience better. And we do that. Like, I mean, you know, when we get claims calls, I mean, we're constantly trying to figure out during hurricane season how to shorten the amount of time that we take to solve a customer's problems. So we are taking, you know, a lot of experimentation in that process to understand how to respond faster, how to respond better to customer's calls, switching different things around and that is just about improving the customer experience so experimentation does not always or or doesn't need to be at odds with regulation Mm, or the the expense of the business or the reputation um i guess based on you know everything i'm hearing from from you both maybe the answer to this is is no different but i was interested to ask it hypothetically if Ken was founded today. How would the tech strategy or how would the technical strategy, sorry, be different? Do you think it would be different because it's so baked into the culture that it seems like you would you wouldn't change a thing and it would be the same as it was seven years ago? In terms of broad culture, I I think we would definitely try to maintain a lot of the same mentality that we're we're talking about. I mean, I can, as any developer can, I can point to specific things that I wrote five years ago that I'm like, I don't know that that's the right way to do it. Um, (laughs) But from a broad strategy, uh, I definitely say that figuring out a way where we can have people in tune with the business needs, especially, and people in tune with what are appropriate risks to take um, and in tune with product as well uh, would definitely be high on the list. In terms of um, in terms of things that might be a little bit different, if I was a part of starting Kin over right now, uh, our original stack for everything, top to bottom, was Ruby on Rails. 
right. which we chose primarily yes. because we were a Chicago-based startup company. Chicago is the birthplace of Rails and has a ton of different pedigree in Chicago startups. Uh, you have folks like Groupon here um, yeah. who are all Rails and a lot, a lot of others. And especially early on, a lot of folks came from Groupon and uh, Amount, which at the time was called Avant. Um, and all that to say is Rails has been great for us. It's been a super effective tool for us to quickly deploy business-oriented solutions. But if I were starting today, certainly as we've grown, uh, hiring your first five developers in Chicago is a very different story than hiring your next 100 developers mm. from all over. Um, it's got a little bit less of a mindshare and a little bit less of a um, little bit less of a up and coming skill set just based on applicants that we've been talking to. There are a lot of a lot of folks who love it. I love it a lot myself, um, but it certainly hiring has been uh, a little bit more difficult than it was seven years ago. So that might just core tech choices might be a thing that I adjusted. That's really interesting. Yeah, and and as as if you've evolved in Chicago, everyone was in the office probably years ago. Uh, how has that evolved now? Is, is everyone distributed across the US? Is the tech team fully remote or is it a little bit of a little bit of everything? Uh, I would hesitate to say anything other than that we're fully remote. Um, okay. What I mean by that is uh, I tend to consider us a little bit of a hybrid because I'll go into the office once or twice a month to catch up with people. Um, but in my experience, when people say they're hybrid, they mean we work in the office three days a week. Uh, yeah. The company is trying to pressure us to go more and more. Um, whereas for us, we have folks in, I don't have an actual number of states off the top of my head, but I would guess at least 20 different uh, states um, that I work with day to day. Uh, and right before COVID hit, we actually uh, already were at a point where we were building up a Florida office. So it came at the, it came at a time for us where we had uh, within the past year uh, or two gone through the, well, what does it look like to have employees in other states? Um, and then it already sort of bitten off that initial bullet. Um, and then I think it was a, a couple of months into COVID uh, where someone said, well, I don't, I don't know that we're ever actually going to go back. And some folks started moving to other states and we had a referral who was a great hire in a new state that we were in. Um, so I would say we're very much so fully distributed, fully remote, though we do try to get together uh, either at a team level or at a leadership level in Chicago uh, with with some regularity. Mm. Interesting. I'm, I'm conscious of, of your guys' time, so I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up. I have a few more questions, so I'll pick one of them that I had left, but... Um... Going back to the kind of the strategy and the toolkit that you mentioned, um, maybe there's a few things that you tweak, i.e. The, the Ruby on Rails language. Like looking forward, where we, we couldn't get through an episode without mentioning AI, of course. Um, but but where does where does AI fit into the 
into the strategy. Is that something that you can discuss now, or is it like, yeah, just kind of keen to see how that fits into the Ken puzzle at this point? Yeah, uh, I think we can discuss it. Um, so AI, I always find really interesting when it comes to insurance, mm. because when you hear about the the sort of catchiest things in uh, sort of popular mindset right now, you have a lot of things like chat GPT, and you have a lot of people who are automating communications with customers or automating responses to questions. But in insurance, you, you sort of can't have a false positive or false negative. Like if, if you, if someone asks about their coverage and you tell them the wrong thing, it kind of becomes the right thing. Uh, Cause if you told someone they were covered, then they're, they're covered. And if they sue you, they're probably going to win a lawsuit against you. Uh, so where we've had, uh, where we've had a lot of exploration and a lot of success isn't the sort of first thought chat GPT is amazing. Let's use it everywhere. Uh, because we want to make sure that a customer is one, always talking to someone who will be accurate more than anything. We have had a, a lot of, uh, success trying to explore AI as ways to, either help internal employees where, you know, someone asks, well, hey, what does roof surface payment schedule mean in my coverage? We might not necessarily be comfortable showing a uh, an outside customer whatever an AI tool has to say, but we might be more comfortable surfacing, hey, this is what we think it is. As always, double check. Here's a link to, to something, to an internal agent. Right. Um, and we've had a lot of success uh, when it comes to analyzing different ways to improve uh, loss ratio with AI. So either trying to figure out, hey, what's what's the most likely group to be hit with a hurricane? How can we send them texts in advance? Uh, what are our learning models telling us about um, expected loss ratios for homes? How can we use that information when it comes to whether or not we want to buy a lead from an automated lead source, um, that that sort of thing. Levake mm. might have other other examples. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think uh, people don't have a uh, a definitive view of what AI is, as as Kevin alluded to earlier, which you know. It creates a wide variance of what the expectation is. I think traditional machine learning, we use it extensively, right? Yeah. Um, it, machine learning is a subset of, of AI, but traditional machine learning, we use it quite extensively to understand pricing, underwriting, uh, images, and so on and so forth. The What we call... Uh, you know, we but the example we use today with Chat GPT uh, is slightly different. That tries to mimic uh, human cognitiveness, and I will say that the uses of uh, things that require human cognitiveness in the insurance industry are more limited. As 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 Kevin said, you you know we can't give vague <laughs> vague answers to to people's questions. You have to really make sure they're accurate. So I think the, I would say that part of it is um, 
probably think uh, an area where we're learning, trying to make sure that we understand the use and apply it where it is, you know, maybe applicable. Uh, but we will, uh, we use machine learning quite extensively uh, in the space and so does, uh, so do a lot of other companies. I think we just do it better. <laughs> uh, maybe I might have biased view on that, but I think uh, uh, we, we, we do it quite well. And also, you know, uh, as I talked about the speed, you know, you know, having a deep understanding uh, of your data, being able to model that data, being able to apply that data to business cases, that cycle time, that closed loop is really important for a company to be successful. If you don't have a closed loop and that loop is not fast, then your value is going to be lower uh, than, than otherwise. So I think we do a good job of that. But I think to your question of whether we're using cognitive AI as much, I will say, I think we still have to find um, a killer use case for cognitive AI. Mm. No, thank you. That's super interesting. And and yeah, I think you're right. I think everyone, you're definitely right. Everyone's specifically with an insurance anyway, still trying to figure out and define where it can go and what value it can add. Seems like everyone's constantly looking over their shoulder to see who's doing what with it um but uh yeah just just an interesting kind of last question i wanted to get your opinion on so guys thank you for um for coming on it's been it's been really interesting and, and such a pleasure to have you on um and yeah enjoy the rest of your day yeah thanks so much for having us thank you have kevin cheers